Hey, I'm going to tell a story that if you're claustrophobic, this might trigger you, so just cover your ears. Uh, I got the opportunity to go on a mission trip to Turkey, and we went to Cappadocia. And what they've discovered underneath Cappadocia, or Cappadocia, it depends on how you pronounce it, is this underground city that's linked together with all these tunnels. And it's big enough for 20,000 people to go underground and to live and to be safe. And the Christians used it a lot to escape Roman persecution. And you could, you know, all your food stores. So in our tour, we had the opportunity to go and go underground. And the leader of the trip, Joe, told us, hey, I just want to make sure you know that if you're claustrophobic, this might be a little bit difficult. Who's in? And I'm thinking, I gotta go. I have a little problem with claustrophobia, but I thought, I want to experience everything. So there's about 30 in our group that go underground, and you go down these stairways and through these narrow passages, and you go from room to room. And I mean, people lived there. They had churches and kitchens and, and homes where families could live, a school. Everything was underground. The deeper we got underground, the narrower the tunnels. And we had to go from one major section to another, and they said, okay, this tunnel is going to be so small that you'll have to really crouch down and just go single file one person after another. And so there we go. And we're like way down underground. And they have these little lights on the side of the tunnel that light your way. So we're kind of inching our way through the tunnel, and all of a sudden the lights began to flicker. And then they went out. And we are in the smallest tunnel in the pitch black, single file. The first seven people in line were these sweet elderly nuns. And now we're stopped. And I'm in the middle. There's people in front of me. There's people behind me. And there is nowhere to go. And I thought, don't panic. What if somebody panicked in this moment? It would have been a catastrophe. I'm thinking, Joe, I'm never going to follow you again. It was terrifying. And then the lights flickered. They came on, and we continued on with our tour and eventually came up to the surface, and I kissed the ground. I was alive. You have to be careful who you choose to follow because who you follow is determined by who you trust you want to have trustworthy people that you follow and we'll see that in our text this morning in John chapter 9 where Jesus heals a man who is born blind so you're invited if you've got your scriptures to turn to John chapter 9 and you know Jesus is always teaching on multiple levels he has his disciples with them him, and he is teaching his disciples how to see, how to see what's happening around them, how to have good vision. We're in our uh, really fantastic series called Conversations with Jesus. We're looking at the Gospels. We're looking at the conversations Jesus had with people, and they parallel our four key values at the River Church. This one we're in till Christmas is love God. It's foundational, learning how to love God. In this story in John 9, where Jesus has a conversation with this man, 
these are the bookends to some experiences this man has with four different groups in his faith community. And this is my premise this morning. This is the big idea. This is what I like to wrestle with and talk with and have you think about with me. And that is this. Healthy faith communities support our intention to trust Jesus. A healthy faith community will support our intention to trust Jesus with our lives. And that's our prayer. That's our desire. We want the river to be the healthiest, safest, warmest, best place as a, as a, a people of faith, as followers of Jesus, so that each one of us individually can keep leaning in to trusting Jesus with our lives. I think this is what it means to love God. I think loving God is trusting Jesus. The question is, can you, can you love someone that you don't trust? And that pushes us to the edge of, do I trust Jesus with my life? Jesus, do I trust you? It makes me think of that film, Aladdin. When Aladdin says to Jasmine, do you trust me? That's what Jesus says to us. Do do you trust me? That is the life of a disciple. And if you immerse yourself here in the Gospel of John, as we have the first, uh, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, Jesus is in Jerusalem And it's during this time called the Feast of the Tabernacles. And one of the traditions they had with the Feast of Tabernacles was all these beautiful, wonderful lights. Now, Jesus is in Jerusalem. It's a highly charged religious moment, but all this politics happening. And actually, Jesus is very savvy, and he knows exactly what he's doing. And at one point during the festival, chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus cries out, I am the light of the world, with the temple lights behind him. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. He's inviting people to follow him and to have their eyes open, to have the light of life, And it's ironic or it's interesting or intentional that John then shows us that Jesus is going to do that for this man who had no light, who was stuck in a tunnel with the lights out. He's going to demonstrate to us and to this man that he is indeed the light of the world. And he's going to invite him to follow him, to believe on him. You know, there's so much going on in, in this context Jesus is in conflict with the religious leaders. They're not happy with what he's doing and who he's claiming to be. And in fact, the verse before our story, the last verse of chapter 8, at this they, the Pharisees, picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Can you imagine? I mean, Jesus is sneaking away because there's some guys that want to kill him, that want to stone him. So not only is he dealing with the reality of these religious leaders who are so opposed to him, 
But at the same time, Jesus has the crowds. The crowds are clamoring to get near him, and they want to make him their king. They're cheering him on. And yet Jesus, always in the midst of the crowds, has his eye on the twelve. He has his eye on the disciples. Jesus is training his disciples so that when he's gone, they'll lead. But not only that, he's headed to the cross. Jesus knows what his ultimate mission is. All this is going on in his mind. And now notice the first verse of chapter 9. He's leaving the temple grounds and there's people chasing him who want to stone him. They want to put an end to him. They want to kill him. What would you be doing at that moment? Verse 1, as he went along, he saw a man. I don't know about you, but that, that could be the whole sermon right there. In the context of what Jesus is going through, he sees one person. That is remarkable about our Savior. And if you ever feel like nobody sees me, I'm invisible, this ought to give you encouragement that Jesus sees you. He saw a man blind from birth. Jesus has eyes to see. There's four groups in this story that also see Jesus. The disciples, this guy's neighbors, the Pharisees jump back into the story, and then his parents. And wow, we could talk at length about each one, but I'm going to be as brief as possible about them. Because my focus is healthy faith communities support our intention to trust Jesus with our lives? Would you want to trust these people? Let's just see. So in verse 6, Jesus sees the guy. He spits on the ground. And he made some mud with the saliva. That's delightful, isn't it? And what did he do with it? He put it on the man's eyes. Okay, that's weird. That's a strange sort of thing. Now, there were some medicinal ideas in their heads about saliva and the mud. And, you know, I mean, I guess you could go to a spa and have the, the same thing sort of happen to you. Um, but Jesus then uh, put it on his eyes and he said to the man, verse 7, Go. Wash in the pool of Siloam. And what did the guy do? Here's faith. The man went and washed. And he came home seeing. Now there's four people that see him. How did they see him? First of all, it's the disciples. The disciples there uh, in verse 2 asked Jesus when they saw this man born blind. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither. And I love Eugene Peterson's translation in the method, message. He, he says, you're asking the wrong question. In other words, hey, guys, here's a man desperate. He, he's born blind, and you want to have a theological conversation about who's to blame for his blindness? You're missing the point. The disciples saw this man as a theological puzzle for debate, looking for blame. 
I love to talk theology, but that's not the point right here. Obsessing over theological puzzles gives us the ability to keep the man and Jesus at arm's length. And Jesus says, no, we're getting down to what real faith is. There's an action here. Jesus spits, he makes mud, he puts it on his eyes. He says, go and wash. And so the man went. Disciples, did you see that? Did you see what the man did? And then he went home seen. So the second group are his neighbors. He goes home. Can you imagine the stir that must have been happening when this guy comes home? The neighbors, look at verse 8, and those who had formerly seen him begging asked a question. Wait, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? And some claimed that he was. But others said, no, he only looks like him. The neighbors saw this guy as a faceless beggar stuck in poverty. Only too easy to ignore. They put a label on this guy. They put him in a box. They put him in a category. Oh, that's the blind guy. Done with that. Oh, that's the blind guy who sits by the side of the road. Oh, okay, yeah, that's him. That's who he is. That's his identity. No, no, he's the blind guy that sits by the road and he begs. That's, That's who he is. And when we put him in that box and label him, in one sense we're kind of done with having to ask the question, What does it mean to really see him? What does it mean to trust? What does it mean to support this guy's intention to change his life? No, we're done with it. Because he has a label and a name. So they don't know what to do with him. So in verse 13, they they brought this guy uh, to the Pharisees, the religious leaders. Okay, we don't know what to do with them. So, so let's bring them to the Pharisees. That's the third group. And notice how the Pharisees respond to this situation. They brought to the Pharisees uh, the man who'd been blind. Verse 14, now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. And this is the point where the, 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 the base dun-dun-dun should come in in the moment. Oh, no, Jesus broke the law. This is what they were concerned about. This is the only thing they cared about. Jesus broke the Sabbath law because he worked by making mud out of his spit. Not acknowledging the fact that when Jesus did it, he healed the blind man. That's the pharisaical mindset. Missing life for your rule. Jesus went to the cross primarily because he broke bad rules. He honored the law. But when we take the law and use it to continue to oppress and harm and hurt people, instead of setting them free and giving them life and light, Jesus is really quick to step right over that line and break that rule. Sometimes when we take, I don't know, our idea of what God values and we turn that into a law or into a tradition, we can end up missing what God's really doing. We end up missing and we end up being blind to to the reality that God is giving sight to the blind. 
I remember when I was a youth pastor and a girl in our group, 15 years of age, she got pregnant. And that's always a life-shattering, traumatic situation. In fact, I sat with her after camp to tell her uh, parents with her um, that she was pregnant. And it just, it was, it's just a heart-wrenching, difficult situation. She made the commitment that she was going to keep this baby. And uh, she was not going to give it up for adoption. She was not going to abort the baby. She was going to keep this baby. And so now here she is. She's part of our youth group. And I will tell you that many times when this kind of thing happens, they're no longer part of the youth group. It's too difficult for them. There's too much shame. But there was a commitment to her to be with her, to hang in there with her and support her in her small group. They rallied around her and they walked with her. We all walked with her through her pregnancy as it became more and more obvious that here's a girl at church in the high school group who's very, very pregnant. And there was a point in time where in this process of receiving that support, she just felt like, I want to say something to the group. And it included all sorts of things about her life and the change that had come into her life and her decision to keep the baby and her relationship with God and her shame and her guilt and her decision to want to move forward in a life with God with this very obvious baby about to be delivered. And uh, her whole small group stood up with her. And I can remember, and I, I'm not saying this in an overly critical sense because I totally understand this, but there was a group of parents who, who, who reached out to me after this happened and they said, you know, we just really have a, a problem with the way you're celebrating and, um, and, and cheering on this girl who got pregnant. Don't you know the message that that's sending to all the other girls that, you know, wow, you know, if I get pregnant, people will love me more. I said, oh, yeah, I get that. But what's the alternative? What is the alternative in that moment to say, you're not welcome here? You have to somehow wear clothes that let everyone know that, that you have sinned? You know, I mean, wh- what, what do we do? And that group and those girls that rallied and loved her changed her life and let her know that Jesus can see her. And sometimes... Uh, and, I, and I understand that, that sentiment completely. It's so tricky, and what do you do? Um, healthy faith communities support our intention to trust Jesus with our lives. Even in all of our messiness and all of our mistakes, we hang in there with one another, and we keep moving forward. So the Pharisees, they want to figure this thing out, so they decide they're going to call his parents, speaking of parents, the fourth group. And in verse 18, they still did not believe that he'd been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? And they said, we know he's our son and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. And, you know, that actually is pretty good parenting. Because, you know, when your children grow up, you have to stop speaking for them and writing their college essays and all those other sorts of things we do. He's grown up. He's of age. Let him speak for himself. It's a good job. But what was behind 
that statement. Motive is really key. You got to look at verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid. You get it? That's, that's what's behind this statement. They were afraid. What were they afraid of? They were afraid of the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. And you cannot risk being put out of the synagogue because of your social standing in the community, because of your economic sort of uh, stability, because of your sort of religious inclusion. Why did they toss it over to their son? Because they were afraid. Fear was motivating their parenting. They saw their son as a risk to their standing, and thus they chose to abandon their son at that moment. You're on your own. So in verse 24... A second time, the Pharisees summoned the man who had been blind, and they said this. This sounds very religious. Give glory to God by telling the truth. And then they give their foregone conclusion as to what they believe is the truth. We know this man, Jesus, is a sinner because he broke the Sabbath law. And he replied, this man... (laughs) This is great. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. And actually, I think he's saying, I don't care. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And you can go on and read his interchange with the Pharisees, man, but this guy is bold. He was born blind, now he can see, and he let those guys have it. And it really made them angry. And you can often find the true root of the the motivation behind authority and power. It's how they treat people that challenge that authority. And in verse 34, to this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. Now that's a swear word, but the translation is very calm. You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out of the synagogue. You imagine the guy was born blind, was a beggar on the side of the road. Jesus gives him sight and new life, and these religious leaders come in and excommunicate him again. Threw him out. So here's the bookend. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? This bookend is powerful. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and he went and searched for him. I'm going to go find that guy, because he matters to me. I'm going to go search for him. And Tess... Where's Tess? That, that song, um, Reckless Love, Tess, way to go, man. That was so powerful. And I, I just want you to know, um, the 
this guy could sing that song. He, he knew about God's reckless love. Because while they wanted to go and stone him, he saw the guy and healed the guy. And they threw him out and he went and searched for him. Let the lyrics go again in your head. It's really powerful. Last week, Todd talked about God's scandalous love with the woman that was caught in adultery. It was a scandal what Jesus did. And this is incredibly reckless. Do you believe in the Son of Man? The word believe. Jesus is inviting him to move toward spiritual sight. Come closer. I'm inviting you into a relationship with me. The man says, well, who who is this son of man, sir? The man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you've now seen him. Remember, Jesus was healed by the guy when he was blind. He put mud on his eyes so he couldn't see a thing. Said, go to the pool. He went to the pool, went home. And now Jesus, he's never seen Jesus. He's, he's meeting him for the first. He doesn't know who this guy is talking to him. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Well, who is he? Tell me that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you've now seen him. You can see. You have eyes. You're looking at me. In fact, he, the Son of Man, is the one speaking with you. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. That's love. Worship is love, offering our worship to Jesus So I'm intrigued by this word group. Believe. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? What does it mean to have faith in Jesus? Well, it also means to trust. Faith and trust are so similar. Faith is not a nebulous noun. It's an active verb. Faithing in Jesus. It's the same as following Jesus, worshiping Jesus. Loving God is trusting Jesus. Our consultant, Carl Martin, from Scotland. He wrote a book and I pulled this line out of the book. He said, fruitful discipleship is not, the ab- not about the absence of sin or the adherence to a doctrine. It's all about the presence of Jesus. Now that can make some people very nervous. It's not about the absence of sin. Jesus says, that's not the point at this moment. And it's not about, you know, the right beliefs. It's about the presence of Jesus, I encourage you to go back and listen to the, to the other messages that are part of this Love God series. Todd kicked us off with love, love God. The greatest command is to love God with everything you've got. And the next week, we looked at Jesus, uh, looked at his disciples right in the eye and, and, and said, well, people say all sorts of things about Jesus, but, but who do you say that I am? It's this relationship. And then the next one, was about abiding. Remember, Todd talked about abiding. Jesus says, you can't bear fruit unless you abide in me. It's the presence of Jesus. It's the relationship with Jesus. It's not getting all hung up about these these supposed sins and, and, and errors. As important as that is, Jesus is never negating the reality of sin and the crushing weight that that brings. And of course, right belief is so Vital. Who do you say that I am? But we miss the point when we forget that it's about 
the presence of Jesus abiding and being with him. And he changes us. It's about trusting Jesus. Jesus put mud on his eyes and said, now go. Now go. Wash. And what did the man do? He got up and he went and he washed and he came home seeing. That is faith. It is hearing the voice of Jesus and it's getting up and taking the first step toward the pool. You know, one way to think about this is when you go skiing, snowboarding. I don't know if we'll ever get winter here, but it's going to happen in the mountains sometime. And we're going to go skiing. And you know, when you ski, you have to trust your edges, right? You have to put your weight down on the edge of the ski. And when you do that, guess what? It works. You turn. You don't trust your edges. You end up in a pile, right? And then you trust the other edge and you turn again. And then you trust the, and you put your weight down on the edge. That's what Jesus is inviting us to do. Put your weight down on Jesus. That is faith. That is believing. Believing without putting your weight down is just emptiness. It's trusting Jesus. Jesus says, go and you put your weight down and go. You take one step. So here's the big question that we'll land on. I think the great question is, will you trust Jesus with blank? And then you fill in the blank. Will you trust Jesus? Now, now what goes in the blank? And right now, a lot of families are wrestling with college admissions, right? Oh, will you trust Jesus with your college admissions? That is too big. That's too nebulous. That's too hard. Jesus says, I want you to trust your edges and just take the first step. When you fill in the blank, I don't know what it is. Our stories are so diverse. When you fill in the blank, you got to whittle it down. For me, right now... Jesus wants me to trust him with my wife's cancer. And it's extremely difficult. And this church, you all have been amazingly supportive as she's gone through four rounds of throat cancer. She's in the healing process. And if you tell me, okay, Bill, you need to trust Jesus with your wife's cancer. I say, I can't do that. I can't. That is too big. It's too hard. I don't, know, I don't know what it looks like to trust Jesus with my wife's cancer. But as I've been praying, as I've been thinking, and I'm working through a Dallas Willard workbook on the Sermon on the Mount, what he's pointing out is that I am really angry. Will you trust me with your anger? That's different. That's smaller. And as I begin to pray and work on that and ask the question, what does it look like 
to not be full of anger and contempt toward God and other people. Then through the Spirit, he's gently begun to uncover other things. That my anger is not just at my wife's cancer. It's at all sorts of disappointments and frustrations that now I can say, God, I want to trust Jesus with that disappointment and work on that. And trusting Jesus with the cancer is going to come as a result of taking one step at a time toward the pool of Siloam. So what does Jesus need to put mud on in your life? What would you put in that sentence? Trust Jesus with. You know, when the Allied forces landed on the beaches of Normandy, they knew they had to, they had to liberate France. But they knew they couldn't liberate France all in a day, right? What did they decide they had to do? They had to take the beach. They had to take the beach. And they stormed that beach. And through great courage and fear and loss of life, they took the beach. And then they took the cliff. And then they took the first town and the next town. And ultimately, they made it to Paris. And there was liberation of the entire country. And the war eventually ended. That's discipleship. Don't start with France. It's too big. It's too ominous. Start with the beach. What's the beach head for you? I will trust you, Jesus, with this. And just take that first step. That's the life of following Jesus, one step at a time. Healthy faith communities support our intention to trust Jesus with our lives. That's what this is about. When we come to worship, in fact, why doesn't the band come on up and get ready? Um, we, we encourage one another. We, we support one another. Uh, we don't always get it right. But we hang in there with each other. And so as they lead us in song, um, we have the opportunity to go to the table for this symbolic meal with Jesus that he had with these sometimes boneheaded disciples. He washed their feet. He loved them to the end. And he invites us to that table with them to take the bread and dip it in the cup. The bread represents Jesus' body broken for us. The, blood, the juice represents his blood, which gives us the power, the, the breaking of the curse of sin for us to move forward in this life of discipleship. So God bless you as you come to the table and as we learn how to be a healthy community that supports one another in our intention to trust Jesus with our lives. Lead us.